welcome everybody to the LSE, to this event, which is part of the LSE Literary Festival and is the bit provided by the LSE's Spanish Studies Centre, uh, which is basically me and the lady in the front row. <laughs> um, actually, I could walk around that way. Right, so what we're going to do is, well, let me introduce everybody. Basically, what you've got here is a historian who knows nothing about literature, that's me, a novelist who knows nothing about history, that's Eduardo Mendoza, and in the middle, a historian who knows all about history and literature, that's Helen Graham. Now, you all know who Eduardo Mendoza is. He is one of Spain's greatest novelists and has written a couple of very important, I suppose one could call, historical novels, La Verdad sobre el Caso Savolta, and La Ciudad de los Prodigios, and most more recently, uh, actually on the Civil War, Catfight or Riña de Gatos. Helen, of course, is the author of uh, a very short introduction to the Spanish Civil War, which is a massive bestseller with Oxford University Press, and most recently, a book called The War and Its Shadow. Now, jesting aside, it is actually the case that this event is, is for you, it's for the audience. Um, there are novelists and publishers in the audience, um, but everyone, every one of you will have a view on what we're talking about. So the bit that we're looking forward to is the colloquium after we've all said a bit, which, which will come at the end. Now, of course, most wars produce great literature. Uh, some of you may have even seen Tolstoy's recent TV programme, The War of Peace. We all know about Eric Maria Remarque's All Quiet on the Western Front from the First World War, Vasily Grossman's <coughs> Life and Fate from the Second World War. And the Spanish Civil War, certainly in terms of history and literature, has produced a wildly disproportionate amount of writing. Works of history on the Spanish Civil War are now well over 30,000. I have no idea how many... Uh, novels are being published about the Spanish Civil War, but it would not surprise me if it was going on for more than a thousand. Spanish Civil War is often called the, the Poets' War, and of course, uh, Poems for Spain, the anthology edited by Stephen Spender and John Lehman and W.H. Auden's Spain are, are, are some of the most famous um, publications, poet, poetic publications in the English language. There have been dozens of films. You've, or many of you will have seen Pan, Pan's Labyrinth or The Spirit of the Beehive. And, of course, some of the films are adaptations of novels, like the film of For Whom the Bell Tolls, or, more recently, uh, Butterfly's Tongue. There's even been a musical about the Spanish Civil War, Goodbye Barcelona, by Karl Levkovitz. But tonight we're going to be looking at the most popular literary category... <coughs> the novel, and largely those in English and the languages of Spain, particularly those that have, have, have been translated. Now, this, as I just said, the Spanish Civil War is the background to hundreds of novels that range across various genres, from the factual via spy stories such as those of Alan Forst, or detective stories like José Luis Ibáñez, to magical realism, one of the 
really wonderful novels about the Spanish Civil War, which is not very well known, is by Antonio Soler, El Nombre Que Ahora Digo. Now, speaking as a historian, one of the problems that historians face when reading novels is that, of course, far more people read fiction than read history. And therefore, far more people are likely to be swayed by the errors with which fiction uh, abounds. Now, crudely speaking, where the Spanish Civil War is concerned, there are two categories of novelists. Those who actually live the war and those who imagined it afterwards, using research, interviews, family memories, whatever. Within both categories, I would argue as a historian that the key elements in a good novel about the Spanish Civil War have to be historical truth and authenticity. Whether dealing with with those who experienced the war or imagined it, there are again two categories. Those who give life to imagined characters and situations and those who play with real historical figures and situations, which in my view can be a very dangerous thing to do. Now it would be easy to spend the next hour and a half simply reciting lists of names of authors of novels about the Spanish Civil War. So I'll be pretty brief trying to make some very brief comments about uh, a number of writers before saying or going into a little bit more detail about probably the most famous, that's to say Ernest Hemingway, and in my view the best, which was Arturo Barrea. Now writers who experienced the war, of course, the well-known foreigners, Hemingway, Orwell, André Malraux, wrote L'Espoir, John Dos Passos, who, when I was a lad, was considered the world's greatest novelist, and now no one could even remember him. He wrote a book called Centuries Ebb about, about the Civil War. Of Spanish writers, we've got, I mean, just centering on the really great ones who lived the war, Max Aub, who wrote his multi-volume Magic Labyrinth, Ramon J. Sender, who wrote Requiem por un Campesino, and the multi-volume Cronica del Alba, Manuel Chávez Nogales, who wrote The Wonderful La Sangre y Fuego, Juan Eduardo Zúñiga, who wrote a terrific trilogy about the Siege of Madrid. What they all have in common is they do something that is virtually impossible for the historian. They recreate the living experience of what it was like to be there. Again, of, of, of those who actually lived the war, there are two Catalan novel, novels that do this to an extraordinary degree. Joan Salas' Incerta Gloria, which I think Helen will be talking about later, evokes unbelievably the absurdity as well as the madness uh, and the hunger of war. And Mercedes Rodoreda, La Plaza del Diamant, an account of life in Barcelona, as recounted by an extremely simple woman, so what is extraordinary is how this highly sophisticated novelist, Rodoreda, recounts so much historical detail, social and political, by recreating the voice of this very simple woman. Gabriel García Márquez described this as the most beautiful novel published in Spain since the Civil War. We have Arthur Kersler's Darkness at Noon. That's interesting, not really about the Spanish Civil War, but based entirely on... Kersler's experiences during the Spanish Civil War when he was imprisoned by the Francoists. Then we've got George Orwell. I don't know whether George Orwell counts as a novelist. He certainly counts as the most read writer about, 
about the Spanish Civil War. Now, I said earlier that I thought that books need to be either, well, need to be both true and authentic. Well, in a sense, that's true about Orwell. But I would argue that, and obviously I haven't really got time to go into it in detail, Orwell's contribution to the literature of the Spanish Civil War is roughly on a par with Spike Milligan's Hitler, my part in his downfall. <laughs> and I don't mean that to diminish either. Sp Spike Milligan's Hitler, my part in his downfall is an extremely important book about what it was like to be a foot soldier during the Second World War. What Orwell writes about in Homage to Catalonia is his experiences, which are perfectly valid and authentic and true. But unfortunately, he draws the wildest and most inaccurate conclusions from them. And therefore, going back to what I was saying about the fear that the, the historian has about novels giving the wrong idea to too many people, uh, Orwell would be the extreme, the extreme case. Now, subsequent, after the, those who actually lived the war... Many of Spain's greatest novelists have used the Spanish Civil War. Juan Marseille, who I think Helen will also be talking about, is someone who none of whose novels are about the Spanish Civil War as such, and yet all of whose novels are completely imbued with the Spanish Civil War. Numerous prominent novelists of the day, Almudena Grandes, Antonio Muñoz Molina, Eduardo Mendoza, have written... I've started to write about, about the Civil War. Other great novelist, Jorge Semprún, at least two of his books are specifically about the war. La Segunda Muerte de Ramón Mercader and Veinte Años y Un Día. And then we have one of the writers who to me seems to be most extraordinary, the Gallego Manuel Rivas, whose short story, A Lingua das Bolboretas, <coughs> the, the uh, Butterfly's Tongues, <coughs> is one of the most extraordinary, and also his, his, his novel, O Lapis do Carpinteiro, of which Gunter Grass said, I've learned more about the Spanish Civil War reading The Carpenter's Pencil by Manuel Rivas than every book written by a historian. So I'll be leaving you now. <laughs> but the writings of, of Manuel Rivas are utterly moving, and I think they, it, it's quite right. They do tell us so much more about the Civil War than any historian that I know, and certainly me, could, could do. Now, I said also that I think what's important, what, what a novelist can do that a historian can't, is to evoke the sense of being there. Now, this we find in quite a lot of novels by people who literally absolutely were not there. I'm thinking of Victoria Hislop's The Return which there are parts of that book which I've spoken to her about it. How could you have been there? Do you have a time machine? How did you get back? How were you able to recreate what it was like to be in Granada during the Francoist terror? Or what it was like to be on the road between Malaga and Almeria with all the refugees. Similarly, another book, a, a, a wonderful Catalan novel by Antoni Vives, El Somni de Farringdon Road, The Dream of Farringdon Road, which creates what it was like to be in Barcelona during the anarchist atrocities in a quite remarkable way. 
Now, I know Tony Vives. I know how much research he did. What he actually produced was far disproportionate to, to that research. I could spend 20 years doing research on it, and I wouldn't come up with something as penetrating and precise and as moving as Tony did in that novel. Now, another issue, I mean, we also have actually here, she's here somewhere, Elena Moya, who wrote The Olive Groves of Belchite and La Maestra Republicana, which again have that ability to recreate what it was like to be there. Now, we, an area I don't suspect that I have time to go into is the whole sordid story of Javier Cerca's Soldiers of Salaminas which is sort of based on a real experience, but actually takes as real an experience that was lied about by the person in question, by the historical figure. Probably I oughtn't to go into that. Maybe if people want to talk about it, we can do that later. Now, I said earlier on that having done a quick run-through, I'd then talk about... The two rises I think are the best, and of course the most famous, that is to say, the best for me is Arturo Barrea, who in his book, in the third volume of his trilogy, The Forging of a Rebel, produces one of the most true books about the Civil War, and it's based entirely on personal experience. It is an honest and a painfully honest book. Now, interestingly, Barea felt very, very uncomfortable about, about Hemingway. In a famous article in Horizon, he wrote of Hemingway, he falsifies most plausibly the causes and the actual form of violence of my people. And he questions the authenticity of Hemingway. And he says, even the genuine characters are curiously detached from their background one never quite knows why they fight for the Republic. And this is, of course, absolutely true of Hemingway's play, The Fifth Column, which, bizarrely, is about to have its second only ever production in Britain in about three weeks' time. <clears throat> now, in The Fifth Column, the central character, the weary, cynical, yet romantic Philip Rawlings, is a projection of Hemingway himself. The clues are plentiful. Rawlings has big shoulders and walks like a gorilla. <laughs> he likes raw onions, corned beef, neat whiskey and Chopin records. He drinks at Chicote's bar. All of that's absolutely true about Hemingway. But the lack of authenticity comes out, for instance, in Hemingway's comic presentation of Spanish characters through his crude rendering of what he thinks sounds like how Spaniards speak in English. There are also, and of course we find in For Whom the Bell Tolls, unnecessary distortions of fact, such as his depiction of the pitiless repression carried out by the anarchists in Ronda, in the province of, of, of Malaga. In the book, Hemingway show, or claims that large numbers of right-wing prisoners were murdered by being thrown into the Tajo, the deep gorge, which I'm sure most of you know, runs, through, runs through, through Ronda, absolutely untrue. There were, of course, many right-wing prisoners killed in Ronda, 
but not in that way. They were, they were lined up and shot in the cemetery. And for me, one of the worst things with this I'll end comes in chapter 13 of For Whom the Bell Toll, where Hemingway puts into the mouth of uh, the hero, after having sex, he says to his partner, but did thee feel the earth move? Of course, as you know, Hemingway used thee and other artificial speech forms supposedly as a way of translating what was being said in Spanish. When the novel was published, the phrase, feel the earth move, was not a common euphemism for the orgasm. But thanks to Hemingway, it now is. <laughs> and it became so much so that it gave the singer-songwriter Carol King the title of her major hit, I Feel the Earth Move. <laughs> now, and with that, I'll now pass on. <laughs> speak loud and I'm not even going to try and make a link between that and, and um, that last sentence that is to say and, and uh, Hemingway's idiom and what I'm going to talk about but anyway here we are Paul and I uh, two historians speaking at a literary festival fact versus fiction and of course I suppose at one level it's true for us as historians there is no contest the entry level qualification for what we do is to deal in empirically verifiable quantities and that's a requirement that can be quite frustrating at times in our own work because we have imaginative insights that we know are right from our own sort of saturated inhabiting of a particular past, but we, just, we simply can't substantiate it according to the, the tools of the empirical trade as a historian. So you, effectively you have to kind of leave it to one side. Um, but at the same time, um, I'm not sure I entirely agree with Paul. You know, I think a historian has is only as good as his or her ability to evoke for the reader the full complexity and all the multi-layeredness of the past that they work on um, so that it doesn't remain lost in translation. I suppose it is a bit of a problem for, for, for historians that a lot, a lot of our colleagues feel that they've made such a huge effort to get to the starting line, to dig all of this stuff up, that the, the actual writing is kind of second fiddle. So a lot of stuff sometimes perhaps does get lost in translation. Um, but I think historians can, if they want to, sort of to achieve that end of it not being lost in translation. They can use literary techniques and structures to help them. Um, and we must, have, we must never make things up, of course. That, 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 of course, goes without saying. But I think we can use literary techniques in, the, in what is our supremely difficult task of telling a true story. I mean, that sort of true story is the, the kind of paradox of, of actual history writing, I suppose. And I suppose this is also where kind of good, that is to say, honest novels come into their own too. And, and perhaps above all, novels about wars. Um, all wars tend to produce reductive mythologies, while good novels, like I hope good history, offer a more complicated, non-binary way of telling. So they myth-bust, they, they vaporise myths. Um, good novels can do that even though they are inventing situations or people or whatever um, and certainly you know, good history must do that and I think let's face it when we're talking about wars and particularly the war in Spain the, the, the Spanish Civil War we need to do that myth busting ever more urgently 
Um, it's almost a, a form of public service or uh, an act of civic duty uh, in the light of what are ever more reductive tellings about the war in Spain, which are re-emerging both inside Spain but also across Europe in these fear-ridden days of ascendant populist nationalism. The whole kind of Pandora's box which opened up post-1989 um, after what you might call the eclipse of the post-Second World War anti-fascist consensus, which of course was another myth in itself, of course, but perhaps a more useful one. But what we've, what's now come out from under the carpet is a lot of 24-carat nastiness, really. Um, so myth-busting um, is, is quite important. So for my own brief contribution tonight, what I wanted to do was, as Paul has already mentioned, I want to counterpoint to what I think are outstanding novels of the Spanish Civil War in this regard. First, Joan Salas's Uncertain Glory, Incerta Gloria, uh, published first of all in 1956 and then in, in ever-expanding versions in, in Spain, uh, in Catalan, uh, and then, but only translated into English in 2014 by, by Quercus. Now, this is a book, Uncertain Glory, which is set in Barcelona in the northeast of Spain, in Aragon, uh, during the, the, the actual years of the Battlefield War, 1936 to 39. So that's one thing I'm going to talk about. And the other one is to counterpoint it with, as Paul has also mentioned, Juan Marseille's extraordinary novel, of the searing afterlife of the Civil War, which is set at the end of the 1950s in Barcelona, and which is told in the classic form of detective, of noir, of detective fiction. Uh, which is, it's called Un Dia Volveré, which a liter, of which a literal translation would be One Day I Will Return. It was published in 1982 in Spain, and it's never been, there is no English translation available. So these two novels, what links them uh, is myth-busting. It is also the fact that they both have protagonists who don't fit the brutal binaries which war has imposed upon them and which has then been maintained by Francoism. These are protagonists whose human complexities, if you like, blur the, the false clarities that war violently enforces on everyone involved. And these are people, these protagonists, who, in order to live authentically, have in some way to cross the lines, right? So I'm going to do it chronologically. Uh, first of all, to talk about Salas' Uncertain Glory, uh, and then Marseille. So Salas' book is, as Paul said, a virtuoso <laughs> depiction of the messy, devastating lived reality of war. How war makes everything grotesque, and in the case of the Spanish War, how it utterly consumes the Uncertain Glory, the title, which is a reference to the dream of political renewal, such as Spain's might have, Spain's Republican democracy in the 1930s might have been able to become in other circumstances. So, put that way, you might expect this book to be an unbearable read. But in Salas's immensely humane telling, it's enthralling from beginning to end. I mean, how can I conjure it for you, who probably most people here haven't read it? I suppose it's a kind of mixture of Rabelais, sort of life force meets Shakespearean tragic comedy meets Balzac. Uh, it's a book that kind of, it's a long book, it's 400 pages, and it, it holds off tragedy by the sheer sort of narrative drive and its sheer energy throughout that whole length. At the novel's heart is a, is a group, a trio, more or less a trio of, of young voices who are rendered really quite, really quite brilliantly as they kind of rage to live. I mean, Salas, Salas is very good at conveying through his characters that intense feeling of being alive that wars often very paradoxically produce. 
Um, his protagonists have to confront not only the huge contradictions of the Spanish Civil War, but also, and this is the clever bit, its deepest contradictions in themselves. Each of his characters is actually torn between the old and the new, between the comfort or the sanctity of, a of something they acknowledge as a kind of claustrophobic old, and then the exhilaration um, of the new, but that they're also, fright they're also frightened of it. Um, Soleras the almost, Salas is almost anti-hero, has a, a kind of restless protean energy. There's, there's another character called Trini, who's the activist daughter of shabbily genteel Barcelona anarchist intellectuals, who is, she's at the same time yearning for some kind of transcendent meaning, finding comfort in the old city, in her, ge I think quite her geology studies, which kind of gives her this sense of permanence in the, the midst of flux. But yet she also hates the idea of the past, this, the past that she says weighs like an abyss. So here is Salas actually conjuring the fact that you know, the contradictions and the divisions aren't just between people, but they're, with, they're actually within people. Um, and the war which all of these characters believed would be short changes them all utterly in spite of themselves um, as they take cognizance of the civilian-on-civilian -civilian violence which spreads like wildfire after the, in the wake of the military coup which has triggered the war. For Salas himself, even though he was a Republican soldier, so the novel is to some extent semi-autobiographical, for him the war's meaning lay not on the battlefield, which always is off novel for the whole 400 pages. Uh, nor, did for, nor for Salas did the meaning of the war lie in the tangle of high party politics or partisan politics with which the Civil War, and particularly the Republican zone, was, was replete. No, for Salas, the meaning of the war lay in the radically changed texture of everyday life. And that's what a novel can do. A novel can show that. Um, and it was that radically changed texture of everyday life which really made the change indelible forever. But of course, not in ways meant by any of the, you know, by, or intended or thought by any of those protagonists. So history's little ironies. Um, and in the last analysis of, analysis of this book, um, I think Salas is writing against a terminal lack of imagination that actually provoked the coup, the military rebels to make their coup, which they proposed as, I suppose, a kind of solution to the messiness of social change. But of course, who only succeeded in, in reducing people in Spain to impossible binary choices, right? So the right, Salas's writing is itself a war-defying act because the novel reminds us on every page how life over always overflows theory and dogma. Solaras, the, the, prote, the protean protagonist, quips about the tendency of foreigners to bury the war beneath a welter of the heroic <laughs> and the folkloric. But Salas's main target in, that, in this novel is much, much closer to home. His most compelling voices and, and portraits of people belong to some of the many ordinary Catholics who stood forever at odds to the military rebellion, but who have since been rendered permanently invisible in Western imagination, I think, along with whole entire other Catholic worlds across modern Spain, have been rendered invisible by the ensuing Franco dictatorship's totalizing and seemingly perennial myth of the, of the Catholic crusade. Salas' own deep Catholic sensibility, because he was a practicing Catholic, also recognised the violent anti-clericalism of Republican Spain for the religious phenomenon that it was, while also quite usefully reminding us, and this is useful as a kind of historical tool, reminding us how before Franco, before the many decades of Franco, the divide between believers and non-believers in Spain was dwarfed by the divide between urban and rural culture. 
That's a really big truth and a historical truth, and it's there at the centre of Salas's book. Anyway, understandably, Salas's novel had trouble with the Franco censors. <coughs> a fully comprehensive version would only be published in 71, and, and of course, as the political twilight descended on the dictatorship. But it, although the twilight descended on the dictatorship, it hasn't really descended on the most, most of its most flagrant myths, which are still alive and kicking in 21st century Spain. So for that reason as well, Salas's book is also a kind of active public service uh, and usefully available in English now. Um, okay, so the second one, quickly, myth vaporization is also central to Marche's One Day I Will Return, which is an absolutely spectacularly wonderful piece of writing, which can be read in various ways. It can be read simply at its very compelling face value as this very suspenseful noir thriller, um, even though, even if you read it at that level, it's full of multiple perspectives, rumours, half or implicit hidden knowledge. What can I say? Think about the delivery of the wire, of David Simon's The Wire, and you have, you have what, he, what Marseille does in One Day I Will Return. Um, that's the gist of it. Um, so the, 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 at the very sort of, sort of surface, although not superficial, but at the surface level of, a, of a, a thriller, it's the story of the return from a Francoist jail to his working class Barcelona neighbourhood in the late 1950s of a political prisoner with a history of armed anarchist activism behind him. But subtly and devastatingly, Marseille uses the multiple narratives that he weaves across and through each other to expose the myths and stereotypes of other people, that is to say, the, the, the protagonist's neighbours, friends, family, all of the myths and the stereotypes through which they imprison him or the other imprisons us, uh, and also um, in, in sometimes in, in very deadly fashion. Um, and en route to the inevitably tragic denouement of this novel, Marseille deconstructs a certain sort of masculine heroism of the pistolero, along with pretty much the entire mythology of Republican heroic defeat. Um, but at the same time, he, Marseille also shatters Francoist certainties as well, uh, and exposes the whole pathologies of, of victory. Um, all the while is doing all of these huge, historically important things. He never breaks the texture or unity of the noir novel as a genre, which is an amazing feat, absolutely amazing. Um, of course, because this is a noir, um, suspenseful thriller, unlike when I was talking about Salas, I can't really tell you what the storyline is in this, because that would be an exercise in sustained spoilerage, right? Um, so I will leave it at saying a, a few thematic things to try and pique your interest. Um, Undia Volvere is a, it's profoundly a novel about love, that's clear, but it's just as importantly a novel about models of memory, in which Marseille weaves deep into his narrative, a thematic reflection on the value and perils of remembrance. He present, in the novel, you get memory presented variously as a prison, as a liberation, and almost everything in between. Um, and in the course of doing this, he poses a question that's pretty much pivotal in very many contexts across the world today. How does one establish a relationship with the past, which, what, which, which allows one to forget, in the sense of being able to survive or to live in the present, yet without negating or betraying past commitments or memories? It's a big question. The novel begins with someone, well, the novel begins and ends with someone quite literally pissing on the past. And in between, 
those two, the beginning and end. He, he offers us a, a kind of consummate but never didactic exploration of the very unstraightforward relationship between memory and repression, memory and redemption, memory and justice. Both Marseille himself and his charismatic former anarchist protagonist, whose name is Jean-Julie Jean Vert, are highly ambivalent about the relationship between memory and redemption and memory and justice. Um, and yet the novel's, at the same time, the novel's constant reminder to the reader is that, well, at the end of the day, we have to keep our finger on the trigger of memory, just in case. I mean, the, the actual quote runs something like, forgetting is a way of being able to live. But even so, for some of us, we keep our finger on the trigger of memory, just in case. Um, and this, this, uh, this weapon is literally embedded in the story by way of a buried gun. So the gun being buried is almost symbolically freighted as, as revenge abandoned, right? There's no, there's no future in revenge, uh, but it's there, right? Um, and there's a lot of playing throughout the novel of la with layers of consciousness and with different temporal frames, of course, as you'd expect in a novel about memory. Um, he, he's got in, in a novel which, you know, a, a, read at the surface, as it can be just read very literally, it has an awful lot to say about the non-linearity and elusiveness of human memory, and particularly perhaps of the fragmented and counter-mythic memories of those bar Barcelona working class constituencies who were the socially and politically defeated in the Civil War, and whose scribe, and indeed whose poet, Marseille has always, who most famously is. So... In, in this novel, he, in, in Undia Volvere, memory is constructed around a protagonist who, com, who basically subverts the conventional heroic fighter figure. Um, it's also built around a love story from the, the Civil War, which was then in the 1930s unrealizable and which remains in the 50s present of the novel unrepresentable, right? So in order to, in a sense, the character, in order to live authentically, one must cross the lines, one, whether it's the lines of politics, class, gender, one must abandon fossilised forms of identity, no matter what the risk. Every time I read it, and I've read it a lot of times, I find it, now I find it a very remarkable 21st century novel, in its irony and its ironic questioning of so many things that really increasingly need questioning, starting with the notion of nationalism itself. It would make an epic film... Um, I'm amazed nobody's really thought about that, given the story. But in, in, in a sense, we're awash with, you know, given we're awash with not, not often not very good realistic films about historical memory, I think this would be one which would be worth investing some, um, <coughs> some time and effort in. But first of all, of course, we need a translation into English of the book itself. Um, it's quite amazing we don't have one, given this is a book which is noir. It is a book where, you know... It, it, an, an Anglo-American, as, as I understand it, Anglo, an Anglo-American public is avid for noir in all its shape and forms. So I'm surprised that this hasn't, hasn't yet been picked up. Um, but as noir, just a final remark, the, uh, the book is obviously transcends the genre. Or perhaps that's the wrong way of putting it these days. Perhaps what I mean to say is that all genres can transcend themselves and become... Literature with a capital L, probably not, but certainly something which all something which all literature, you know, the canon is no part of this discussion. But certainly, they can all good novels, all authentic, all honest novels, honest novels. That's a good one. Yeah, what they do is they help us to live. This is not working, is it? Right. <clears throat> I, I cannot speak very loud.
but I hope you can hear me. Um, <clears throat> well, first of all, I would like to uh, apologize to uh, Paul Preston because uh, I am a novelist, and uh, it seems that he, he thinks that it's not our fault. It's not our fault. <laughs> In fact, we, we don't want to be believed. We want to entertain, but uh, it's very difficult for uh, readers not to believe what they read in novels, mainly because a novel demands identification. And once the reader has identified with the characters or with the action, it's part of, of their life. While history is there to be read and understood, um, personally, I don't like historical novels, unless, unless they are extraordinary novels like uh, War and Peace, which is, I think, the best novel ever written. <clears throat> but if it's not a great novel, I prefer history. I am a great reader of history, and I think it's more, much more interesting than having to learn history through the personal mm, things that happen between two people, and a love story that has nothing, that has no interest whatsoever, when what interests me is history, what really happened. Then there are other novels, etc. <clears throat> of course, uh, we have to, uh, novelists have to be uh, true and truthful. The only point is that we only realize that when it is too late. <clears throat> uh, I was born in, in Barcelona in January 1943, exactly uh, four years after the day Franco Stroop entered the city, almost to a day. It was near the end of the Spanish Civil War. I grew up in an atmosphere of uh, fear and silence, like all Spaniards at the time who lived inside Spain. When I say silence, I don't mean that nobody talked about the war. On the contrary, wherever my family met, and by family I mean the Spanish family, father, mother, uh, great, and uh, um, uncles, uh, nieces, neighbors, um, cousins, everybody. When the whole bunch of people met in the living room of my parents' house, for instance, the conversation was always the same, or always ended up with the same subject, the war, what happened in the war. But not really an analysis of the war. Everybody knew there had been a war. They were talking about uh, personal anecdotes, things that everybody knew, so uh, just a mentioning of a name or a situation, just everybody had the whole picture. Do you remember when uh, Francisco came? Oh, yes, 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 that was a story. Do you remember the hotel? Yes, yes, they all remembered. But there were terrible stories, of which I only heard part of it. I, made, I, I never had the whole, the whole picture. They were always uh, personal stories of fear and hunger. Normally, there were women's story. Men tended to keep silent. Stories of uh, people banging at the door in the middle of the night to take away somebody. Women going from place to place to 
trying to find out where the relatives had been taken or whether the son or the husband was uh, dead or alive, cooking uh, soup with a dry bone and potato peels to, to feed the whole family, the air raid on Barcelona, the frightful checkers, a name that was enough to uh, uh, give me a great terror, but I never knew what they were. I knew there was, there was something called a checker. It was a prison, special prison, where incredible tortures were applied to people for uh, hiding a priest or something like that. It was horror stories, and, but these horror stories were told by the same people, by the same persons that afterwards told me fairy tales or gave me presents for Christmas in my family. This chronicle was not a part of a coherent discourse. Nobody ever mentioned history with a capital H. We never tried to explain what had happened. Never an opinion was expressed. Just pieces of personal history and personal memory. I had to wait many years to learn, to learn there had been a war between Spaniards. I, I, I knew something terrible had happened, but I never knew there was a war. And many, many more years took me to realize that those conversations had a, had a hidden subject and a hidden message for me. The subject was the same. What did we do wrong to deserve such punishment. In a war between different states, reasons are objective. They can be fair or unfair, true or false reasons, but they are objective. In a civil war, reasons are subjective. What was it our fault? Did we misplace our vote with the popular front, with the right? Were we irresponsible? With a few exceptions, members of my family were not significant people in a political sense. They had taken no part in the events that led to the civil war. They did not belong to the one of the two Spains. They belonged to the third Spain, majority of Spaniards, men and women, who only wanted to be left alone, but had expressed their opinions on matters of politics, religion, Catalonia, or some other general subject, hoping for the best. Now they felt guilty, both winners and losers. This feeling was in sharp contrast with the official rhetoric of triumphalism, that the Franco propaganda uh, was present everywhere, through the radio, on the cinema, in the newspapers. I always thought this triumphalism was a form of self-justification. And the message was, boy, when you grow up, be careful, think twice before saying anything, before taking any step. Don't repeat the mistakes we made. I don't think the transition, the transition can be fully understood without taking into account 
the way many people who made it possible were brought up in their childhood. <laughs> Some of these I tried to more or less present in one of my so-called historical novels, Riña de Gatos, Madrid, 1936, an American in Madrid in the wonderful translation by Nick Keister. The story takes place, as the Spanish title indicates, in Madrid in 1936, a few months before the beginning of the war. And this, uh, one of the subjects of the novel is the position of several people regarding the future events, a future that obviously they cannot know, that they can reasonably foresee. The recklessness and the levity of most of these people. At that time, in my opinion, nobody thought there would be a real war. Maybe a coup d'etat, maybe a revolution, but not a three-year-long war with troops and, and planes and tanks and with direct or indirect involvement of several foreign powers like Hitler's Germany or Mussolini's Italy or Stalin's Russia. When I grew up, rebuilding the past, this past that I had heard about but didn't know, had become an obsession. I took profit of this obsession by becoming a writer. History was not part of my academic studies, but I was curious and I read a lot about the recent past. Unfortunately, at that time, history was kidnapped by the rhetoric of the Franco's propaganda and its ludicrous fantasies in the great empire where the sun never set, a superior race of conquistadores and saints, El Cid, bullfighters, El Escorial, Cervantes, Velázquez, but not Picasso. <laughs> All together was a sort of a mental soup that I disliked profoundly. The non-official history, because we were still waiting for the British uh, <coughs> writers to, to come, was, was not very helpful because uh, it was based on the, the, all, all historians were uh, Marxist or structuralists, and, and reading them was really a rough crossing. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to, to, uh, to tell not what happened, but how people lived the, the events. I thought history, apart from a science, was also a story upon which people could build their identity. Not in the sense identity has today, a justification to exclude the others and, and food for grievance. I wanted it to be a collective psychoanalysis, a protection against the temptation to consider us better than our neighbors. I, it's obvious that I failed. But I, I wrote a novel. <clears throat> I, I investigated not, not very much. I, I just wanted to, to get some facts to, to, to make history alive. I read um, newspapers, uh, apart from history, I read uh, 
tracts, political tracts. I, I was surprised that um, the most interesting uh, thing that I could read about the past were uh, women's magazines, because I discovered how they dressed, how people dressed, what they ate, their tastes, their morals, trending tropics, topics of, of that time. <laughs> I organized all this material <clears throat> with a confused plot of uh, Roman Noir uh, that was fashionable at the time and that gave me a way to organize that material that I had. I finished my novel in 1971. It took me two years to have the manuscript accepted by a publishing house. In 1973, the publishing house sent the manuscript to the censorship, as was mandatory at the time. Many years later, I read the report of the censor. It began like this. A stupid and chaotic rubbish containing <laughs> all the low tricks of writers who don't know how to write. <laughs> An opinion I concur with. <laughs> but he gave permission for the, to publish the novel because he said nobody would ever read it. <laughs> Only he said the title had to be changed, and so we did. The original title was Los Soldados de Catalunya, the Soldiers of Catalonia. <coughs> the new title was La Verdad sobre el Caso Sabolta, the truth about the Sabolta case. I still prefer the first one, although the second one is probably better. No matter what the censor thought, the first title, Soldiers of Catalonia, had nothing to do with Catalanism or separatism or independentism. On the contrary, the idea was that modern Catalonia had been built on violence. Murderous businessmen and their hitmen and no less murderous anarchists fighting in the streets of Barcelona were the real soldiers of Catalonia, their conquering army, because in the process of bombing and killing each other, they had made a nation out of an impoverished and forgotten <coughs> region in northern Spain. The second title, La Verdad sobre el Caso Sabolta, underlined the investigation, the, the Roman Noir aspect of the novel. It was less political and more literary. Two years later, Two years later, at the beginning of 1975, the publishing house decided to actually publish the novel and send it to, to the censorship for a second time. According to the files, the censor was another person. Both the first and the second censor were, of course, anonymous and designated by a number preceded by the customary don. In my case, it was Don 6 and Don 4. <laughs> the first one was Don 6 and the second one was Don 4. Now, Don 4, <clears throat> the second one, gave a rather favorable report of the novel from the literary point of view. He said, this is a rather interesting novel. He was a man of his time, and a lot of had changed between 1973 and 1975. <laughs> in matters of literary taste and in other matters too. Franco was in his deadbed and former censors were looking for a new job 
in the publishing houses. <laughs> now, the novel came out in the middle of the year 1975. It was well received by readers and critics and was considered the first novel of the transition because, in fact, this is what it was, like Adam and Eve, with no merit of the novel. It was born, right, at the, the best, in the first moment of the transition. In the next 40 years, I've published several novels, of which three follow the same pattern of historical, semi-historical novels. La Ciudad de los Prodigios, City of Marvels, in 1986, Una Comedia Ligera, a light comedy, in 1996, and the already mentioned Riña de Gatos, an Englishman in Madrid, into Hunter, and then. Only in the last two, the Spanish Civil War has some incident, secondary, but incident. One takes place months before the beginning of the war, as I said before, the other a few years after its conclusion. I always refuse to touch directly on the subject of the war. I had heard enough to know that I could not speak in the first person, not even through the safe mask of fiction. It is a problem with us, because we felt compelled to talk about the civil war, but we knew that we had not the right to do so, because we had not lived it. I think there are three generations of Spanish writers as far as the civil war is concerned. The first is generation who participated in the war, in the front or in the rear, and they could offer a testimony for first-hand witnesses. The names have already been mentioned, Arturo Varea, Joan Salles, Ramon Sender, Marcelo Dureda. Then comes my generation, the generation born under the shadow of the war, more timid and more introspect in this sense. Juan Marce, Manolo Vázquez Montalbán, Juan Benet, Francisco Umbral, Rafael Chirves, myself are the first names that come to my mind, but there are many others. And finally, there is the third generation, free from the personal attachment to the war, now, free, free to choose their emotional involvement in the moral dilemma that was the war. I'm thinking of Javier Cercas, Almudena Grandes, Antonio Muñoz Molina, Ignacio Martinez de Pizón, etc. In my view, and I know I will be contradicted, it was Javier Cercas and uh, Soldiers of Salamina published in 201, the first to open this new way to see the war. By mixing history and fiction, maybe more fiction than history, but in any case, uh, changing from history to fiction, <clears throat> and creating a narrator who is also a fictional alter ego of Cercas himself, he developed a tale of the war from a new point of view, both emotional and detached, respectful, but also humoristic, uh, ironical. When I read it, I thought I was reading for the first time a tale that took place some time ago in a not-too-far galaxy, 
but that was not the living room of my family. <clears throat> Another novel worth of worth mentioning in this context is El Tiempo Entre Costuras, translated by The Time in Between or The Seamstress. It has the, the two titles in English. A mainstream novel by Maria Dueñas. The story takes the civil war as a background for a conventional romantic plot. Now, the tremendous success of this book and later of the TV series proves, in my opinion, a new interest in the civil war as something of the past, a field to be exploited open to all. I don't know if this is good or bad. In the recent past, both cinema and television have often used the civil war in a very disgraceful way, with tear-rending or funny plots, with simplistic uh, stereotypes, with very bad actors trying to uh, make, uh, to, to prove that they are not the character they are playing, because it would be, but Maybe it means that a new leaf has been turned and that we in Spain feel so safe that we can treat our recent past as freely as we please. Or maybe not. Or maybe it means that we have forgotten and we are ready to go back to the same <coughs> mistakes again and again. In any case, this approach has made possible, among other things, the rediscovery of past writers of the fascist persuasion who had been anathema, like Agustin de Foxao or the same uh, Rafael Sánchez Mazas. And also, I think, of a rethinking of the civil war in a less clear-cut terms. For a time, I thought that uh, the memoria historica, the historic memory, this movement that took place in Spain, could mean something more than identifying bones in common graves, essential as it is. I thought it could mean a way to take a more balanced view of what happened without adopting a relativist or, or a nihilistic attitude or renouncing principles and judgments. A new step towards reconciliation and the burial of the past that should start, first of all, with the recognition that Franco was a war criminal and not a liberator or an accident provoked by other people's mistakes. Unfortunately, the entrenchment of some sectors now in power makes it very difficult to take this step. But I myself personally did some house cleaning. When I wrote La Verdad sobre el caso Sabolta and also La Ciudad de los Prodigios, I had a sentimental view of the anarchists. At the beginning of the 20th century, in all Western countries, anarchists were a powerful presence, but also a minority. Usually it were the socialists and the communists who took the, confront, the social confrontation. <clears throat> now in Catalonia, for several reasons, the anarchists were the dominant force, the largest in numbers and the more organized. This fact had, this fact had an important significance <laughs> on the making of modern Catalonia, as I already said. Uh, Later on, the civil war exacerbated the traditional confrontation with fatal consequences for everybody. 
but more unusual is what happened after the war. Of course, during the, the war and afterwards, Franco had no pity with the anarchists who he could lay hands on. But in the subsequent years, the propaganda machine didn't pay much attention to them. First, the anarchists had not been a great force outside Catalonia, in the rest of Spain. Second, after the war, anarchism had practically disappeared as a political force, as a political force both in Spain and also in the rest of Europe. <clears throat> then communism was the enemy, and Franco was keen on becoming the bulwark against it in the eyes of the world. The result was that the terrible record of death and destruction provoked by the anarchists was erased from the books of history and the collective memory of the Spanish people. <clears throat> Even when democracy came back several decades later, it was unbecoming to speak evil of men and women who had fought so gallantly against fascism and paid dearly for it. Even direct victims of the cruelty and arbitrariness of the anarchists kept silence. <coughs> so when I wrote my novels, I was misguided. All I knew about the anarchists came from reading books and pamphlets and above all the trilogy of my dear Pio Baroja, La Lucha por la Vida, The Fight for Life, about the anarchists in Madrid in the turn of the century. I was young and easily influenced and I fell in love with the idea with the people and with their deeds. They were my heroes. And the same was true for many uh, writers of my generation. At that time, we were all under the umbrella of the Communist Party, the only one that offered practical means to oppose the Franco regime. But the strict discipline and the exhausting theoretical orthodoxy of the Communist Party bore us as to death. <laughs> anarchists were more attractive and I painted them as such. Only later I began to hear real life stories from the victims of those deeds. Usually they were all women who as children had seen their fathers taken from home and summarily shot just for being a successful businessman or a rightist or practicing Catholics for vengeance or by mistake. As I said before, I was writing novels and didn't feel a strong obligation to be faithful <coughs> to the facts, but I thought I should be faithful to the truth. Probably I was wrong when I wrote these novels <coughs> by depicting the anarchist the way I did. If I could write those novels again, I would change my position, or I may, may nuanced. But this will never happen, because historical studies remake themselves in the course of time, but novels are forever, or at least as long, as they are available in bookshops and libraries. So there is nothing I can do, except ask for the benevolence <laughs> of the <laughs> Thank you very much.